Well, all of us love a comeback story, don't we? I love football. I mean, I, I will watch a football game from Pop Warner uh, all the way up to the NFL. It, my wife sometimes says, um, do, you, do you know those teams? I'll go, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, football is being played, and, and so I will, I will watch it. I would go out in the rain, and I would watch middle school boys play football, even if I didn't know any middle school boy that was on the field, just because I, I love the game. And what's my favorite thing to do in a setting where uh, my beloved Huskers aren't playing, my favorite thing to do is to root for the underdog, right? Uh, for that one that nobody thinks can win, and I especially love it when it starts out and everybody goes, see, see, they can't, they can't win. And then all of a sudden they come back and they, and they beat the team that they weren't even supposed to be in the game with. I, I, I love that. Here's what's unfortunate. Unfortunately, many times what starts out so well and has so much promise never ends with a comeback story. And we're going to introduce to you uh, today just uh, by way of talking about Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we're going to introduce a short series that we're going to do as we take a, a, a brief interlude uh, from our series in Philippians. And we're going to do a series called Comeback Stories. And, um, you know, on Easter Sunday, Jerry's going to speak uh, next week, and obviously he's going to talk about the greatest comeback story of all time, right? And that is uh, the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. But Scripture is full of situations that looked hopeless, that looked helpless, and then God stepped in and did something really amazing. And we're going to look at examples in Scripture of some who were depressed, where there was uh, broken families or other tragic situations in which everything seemed hopeless, and then God stepped in and did an amazing thing. And here's what's going to be the underlying thread in that series, and that is this, that it's never too late, and you have never gone so far, so far that God can't do something incredible again in your heart and in your life. And I hope that series will be an encouragement uh, to you. Um, we think it'll be a great opportunity uh, right after Easter for those first uh, couple weeks uh, to invite friends, family, uh, neighbors, coworkers uh, that don't know Jesus, that don't have a, a regular church home, and invite them to be part of that series here at Northwest. Well, today is uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, some of you maybe grew up like I did thinking Palms Sunday. Not these palms, right? It's Palm Sunday. We refer to it as well sometimes as the triumphal entry. Today is the beginning of what we refer to on the Christian calendar as Holy Week or Passion Week. Jesus walks into Jerusalem with crowds of excited keyword fans into his triumphal entry. And, you know, when I look at that title in Scripture, the triumphal entry, I think, Wow, that has so much promise, so much potential, and yet what sounds so promising by the time we get to Friday of this Passion Week uh, will end what seemingly seems to be so tragically. In fact, it reminds me of the entrance of a, a prized boxer into the, into the boxing arena, and just before uh, he gets into the ring and he starts out what seems so promising because he's the undefeated world champion and then 
just a few rounds later, he's knocked out. Or it's the, the team that runs out onto the field as the defending champions, only to come a few hours later to the end of the game and for that game to end in their defeat. It's just like that, that Palm Sunday, for many people who are observing, starts out so well, so promising, and yet by Friday, things end incredibly badly. But Friday sets up the biggest comeback in all of history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why we'll gather together next week to celebrate the resurrection. If you have your Bibles or you have an electronic device uh, with a Bible app on it, uh, turn to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to look at uh, Luke's account of the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday, this last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And very often we, uh, we tend to skip over these events. Now, we skip over that triumphal entry and what Jesus does Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we go right to Friday and his scourging and his crucifixion. And then we jump then on Easter Sunday into the resurrection. But I think it's incredibly important for us not only to understand what happens on Palm Sunday, but what even happens in those first few days of the beginning of, um, of that Passion Week. Just to kind of set the stage a little bit, for the last couple weeks, Jesus has been ministering throughout all of Galilee. In fact, as he leaves Galilee, he, he makes his way east of the Jordan River and he goes through a region that on the map is known as uh, Perea. And he did there what he had done all through the Gospels. He was healing people, he was uh, teaching, he was establishing his credentials as a king. And after he heals a couple of blind men near Jericho, uh, we see Zacchaeus come to faith, which that's a really cool story, right? We sang about it, you know, Zacchaeus, a wee little man, a wee little man was he, climbed up in, come on, sing with me, climbed up in the sycamore tree, what? For the Lord he wanted to see, and as the Savior passed, okay, you get, you get there, as Zacchaeus comes to faith, immediate life transformation. Here's what you need to understand, and when people came into a relationship with Jesus, that wasn't an irregular occurrence. Jesus would heal somebody and he'd say, come follow me. And they would, they would get up and they would go follow him. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, would come down from that tree and Jesus would go to his house. And he, he understood who the Messiah was, who Jesus was. He began a relationship with Jesus and his life was transformed. That happened all over the place. And in Luke chapter 19, in Luke's account of this Passion Week, this is the beginning of the end of Jesus' three years of earthly ministry. And Jesus at this moment, here's what you need to understand. Friday's not going to catch him by surprise. <laughs> it's going to catch everybody in the region by surprise and ultimately the, the world, but it doesn't keep, catch Jesus by surprise. He knows f full well that final goal that is set before him, that he is to be the Passover lamb. And when we come to this particular passage into the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus is making his way with a large number of people towards Jerusalem. These were pilgrims that were on their way to celebrate Passover. Now, there were people in the crowd, no doubt, who had seen him perform miracles and thought, boy, if he, can, if he can do that, maybe he can make my life a little better. And so they just began to kind of move with the crowd. Little did that 
group of people know that they were accompanying, literally, that one who would be the Passover lamb himself. And he would be the one, ultimately, that on Friday would, would give up his life in order that they might be reconciled to God, reconciled into the relationship that they were created to have. And so here it is. There are masses of people. Historians will, will later estimate that at this point there might have been as many as 2.6 million people in the city of Jerusalem. Some 260,000 lambs that would be needed in order for those um, uh, festivities to take place there, in order for them to celebrate the Passover. That was the scene. And so when we get to verse 28, it, it says, and when he had, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at that mount that is called Olive, from the accounts of the Gospels, we understand that Jesus has been here. He's been nearby for a couple of days. In fact, most Bible scholars uh, suggest, based on other Gospel accounts, that Jesus and his disciples probably stayed with Lazarus. <laughs> Imagine what that would be like. Disciples kind of walk in and go, aren't you the dead guy? And you're kind of staying at his house and you're eating around his table and you just can't take your eyes off of him, right? I mean, you're looking across the table going, this dude was dead. Now he's alive. Jesus spent a lot of time with, with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. This family supported Jesus as he, and he stayed with them often when he was in their area. This is the visit in which uh, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with costly perfume. It's in that setting as they, as they leave Lazarus' house and they begin to make their way into the city that Jesus says to them outside of the city. He says to them in verse 29, he sends two disciples, verse 30, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, think about that. Jesus, basically, if you read the text there, you're thinking Jesus is asking them to go into the city and, and steal a colt, right? Like, that's not very Jesusly, right? I mean, you're not supposed to be doing those kinds of things. Interesting thought as well that, that Jesus is telling them to go and find this colt that's tied up that's never been sat on. I didn't grow up on a farm, but... I do understand basic things, and, and, and that is this, that, um, that that's not a good thing, right? I don't care whether it's a colt or a horse. If you've never been on his back, that's not a good thing. And yet Jesus makes it specifically known that I want you to go in. I want you to get this colt. He's never been sat on. So verse 32 says, so they were sent away and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you taking our colt? Right? And they said, well, Jesus told us this might happen, and what we're supposed to say is the Lord has need of it. So I would suggest to you that if you need anything from your neighbors, you just go to them, you take the keys, and you say the Lord has need of it, right? Very strange occurrence here unless you understand the Old Testament and all the prophecy from the prophets that had led to what Jesus would be, who he would be, and what he would ultimately do. Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And I would say, if your king's coming to you, he's coming on a white stallion. And he's going to have whatever they call the stuff. I'm not a horse guy. Whatever they call the stuff that they put on, he's going to have kind of, he's going to be beautifully adorned. And he's going to have a sword. 
It's not what the prophet Zechariah said. He said he's going to come and he's going to come and he's going to be endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. A donkey. Who does that? I kind of get the picture of, that we have seen often on the news over the last year of Vladimir Putin on this white horse, bare-chested, right? That's kind of what I get. I can't imagine. Imagine that same picture that you've seen. I know you've tried to erase it out of your mind, but that picture that you've seen over and over again. Imagine that bare-chested leader of Russia on a donkey. Nobody would do that, right? Oh, it's a horse. Jesus demonstrates his humility. In fact, uh, up until the time of Solomon, riding on a donkey was actually a noble thing, and it was Solomon that made the horse the animal of dignity and honor and war. And so verse 36 says, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so get the picture. So out of the city, into the city comes this mass of humanity. And those that are in the city hear that, that Jesus is coming. They've heard about him. They've heard about Lazarus. They've heard about the miracles. They've heard about his teaching and all the things he's done over this three-year period of time. And so they all begin to converge together. And in the middle of that mass of people, there is Jesus riding on a donkey. And the people throw down their, uh, their, their coats, their clothing, so that the, the donkey can ride ahead. The Gospel of uh, Matthew and Mark and John gives us a little more detail this account. In fact, our, our children, I know in one of the classrooms this morning, we're talking about this, how they waved palm branches uh, at him and they threw those palm branches uh, on the ground and they shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our English word Hosanna comes from a Greek word that is gotten from a Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana. And that term Hoshiana is found only one time in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 118, verse 25. That Hebrew phrase, John Piper said, means, I like what he wrote. He wrote, it means, save please. It's a cry to God for help. It's like this, Piper says, it's like this when somebody pushes you off a diving board and you don't know how to swim and you come up and you're shouting, Hoshiana, that's probably not the first thing that you would think of in the English language, but you come up shouting, Hoshiana, save me, please help save me. Over the centuries, uh, that term has come to mean something just a little bit different. Instead of a cry for help, as we sang about it earlier this morning, it becomes, becomes a shout of hope and exaltation. It, it came to be what you would say when you see the lifeguard coming to save you. Do you see the difference? One is crying out for help, save me, save me. Then it, come to meant, it came to mean when the lifeguard comes out and you see him and you recognize that you're going to be slay, uh, saved, Hosanna means hooray for salvation. It's coming, it's here, salvation, salvation. So when we sang earlier, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, we're saying salvation is here. God has come through his son Jesus to save us. Here's the tragedy of the whole story of what's going on here. They got the title right and the mission wrong. They got the title right and the mission wrong. 
The tragic irony being set up here is that God was allowing his son Jesus to be rightly announced as the Savior, but the salvation that he brought was deliverance from the penalty, from the weight of, of sin and that estrangement from God, not from Rome and its political rule over them. Incredibly important for you to understand. These were people that felt like they needed Jesus, but they needed him for a much different reason than why he had actually come. Don't forget that this morning as we make our way through this text on Palm Sunday and as we get to the end here. These were people that wanted Jesus, but didn't really realize or recognize why they needed Jesus. In the events of the next few days, Jesus' words and action would define his mission. The huge crowds, the, the fans that accompanied him into Jerusalem would, would come to know what he really came to do. And what they would begin to recognize is that he really had not come what they, uh, to do what they wanted him to do. The religious leaders began to recognize him and see him as a threat because they recognized that his view of righteousness was very different than theirs. And he represented a threat to their very uh, uh, way of life. I want to look real quickly at some of those events. You see, we oftentimes go right from the triumphal entry and we forget these events that take place for the next few days before we get to the crucifixion on Friday and the subsequent resurrection on Easter Sunday. On Monday of the Passion Week, Jesus walks into the temple. And to say he didn't like what he saw is an understatement. If you flip over there in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21, you see Matthew's account of him. Jesus enters into the temple. Pilgrims have come from all over Palestine. They've come for the annual uh, feast days. It's required of these visitors that they have to offer certain sacrifices. Some of them had come from very long distances. And as a result of coming from very long distances, they could not bring animals with them. It was difficult to do that. And so when they arrived in Jerusalem, it was necessary for them to purchase uh, an animal. Uh, the religious leaders that were in charge of those things found it very lucrative to make available these necessary provisions for sacrifice. And so they took advantage of those opportunities. And they would raise the price of those sacrificial animals. It's kind of like this in our modern day. Have you ever been to a, a sporting event of some sort? There's thousands and thousands of people there, and there's sweltering heat, and, and they won't let you bring your water bottle into the stadium. I've been here many times. And so you break down, right? I'm a, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a cheapskate. I don't really want to pay for water, right? I mean, I want to pay pennies. I don't want to pay dollars. But at some point, you just break down. Have you been there? And you go to the concession stand, and you say, I'll take a bottle of water. And you think, how much can it be? I mean, it's 18 cents at Walmart, right? If you buy it in the big, in the big packs, and, and the lady says, that'll be $8. You go, $8? What kind of water is this, right? It's exactly what's happening here. Here's these pilgrims. They have to have sacrificial animals. The religious leaders know that, so they jack up the prices. This is what Jesus comes into. They also, all the males had to pay a, um, a tax, a temple tax, and that oftentimes necessitated them into exchanging their currency for the currency that was there in, in Jerusalem. And so the money changers found this as an opportunity that they could also kind of make the spread, right? 
And so they would change money, charge exorbitant exchange rates, and this was a great business for the so-called religious leaders and their surrounding accompanying associates. No doubt these transactions were taking place. There were loud discussions and arguments and negotiations about how much that pigeon uh, would cost or what that exchange rate would be. And so Jesus enters into this, and it's so important for you to understand that he just can't hold back any longer. And even though he knows the crowds are excited about him and he knows people are watching who are skeptical of him, he goes into the temple and you remember what he says, I will not allow my father's house to be like this. And he overturns tables and gets them all out of there. And that happens on Monday of the Passion Week. The chief priest and the other leaders are looking for a reason to arrest him, but they... They can't because there are crowds that are always around him and they're, and they're concerned about what might happen if there's an uprising of the people. One of the reasons why Jesus provoked so much jealousy and hatred among the religious leaders was that he was a threat to their power. They were accustomed to the public adulation and, and respect, but when Jesus comes, his ideas of righteousness expose their lack of righteousness. And he's a threat to everything that they do and that's important to them, even to their very way of life. And they know that if his teachings are accepted as truth, if he is proven to be the very son of God, that this meant an end to their power and to their prestige. It would be an end to the comfortable life that they enjoyed on the backs of the people. So it's important for you to understand that Jesus alienates, he offends, he disappoints multitudes of people, some of which were very powerful. And all it took was for the fans to get a whiff of what was really going on. <laughs> all it took was for Jesus to begin to say why he was really here. And on that Olivet Discourse and in other times, when he began to talk about the destruction of the temple, and he began to talk about how you can know the signs of the end and all of that, people, his fans, began to recognize that it's not exactly like we thought it would be. He hasn't exactly come to remove our temporary uncomfortableness with our lives. He didn't come just to make our life a little easier, and so they very quickly, as fans, they, they turn against him. See, they thought that their greatest need was to be relieved of the pressures of their current situation. It really, at the end of the day, doesn't sound too much uh, unlike us, does it? So Matthew records for us a remarkable question that is asked. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 10 says, And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Now think about that for just a moment. Isn't that question fascinating? Who is this? They've been following Jesus into the city. They've been shouting, Hoshiana, Hoshiana, save us, save us. And they're not even sure who he is. It reminds me of watching the Super Bowl with certain individuals, right? You ever go to a Super Bowl party and you're there and all the food's there and you're looking around going, I didn't even know that person liked football, right? And then you realize as the game goes on and they start talking that they really don't even understand the game of football. They, I mean, they know that there's a pigskin ball and it's what it's shaped like, but they don't know anything about football. And all of a sudden they ask questions like, who's the quarterback for them? And you begin to go, ah, they're just, they're just simply fair-weather fans. I'm certain we saw it with the Cubs, right? I mean, how, have you, how many of you have been Cubs pretty much ever since you've been alive? 
right? Two, that's great. There have been two Cubs fans ever since you've been alive. The rest of us, I came, kind of became a Cubs fan about game six, maybe partway through game seven, right? I don't really care anything about them. I was just simply a fan jumping on the bandwagon, and then you, you buy the T-shirt, right? Because then maybe people will think that you've been a fan forever. That's the way these people were. They begin to ask the question, Matthew records, who is this? One commentator said it's like a guy uh, that's at a party, and he's having the time of his life, and then all of a sudden he says, hey, what are we celebrating? This is a great party. It's kind of like that. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says, And when they drew near to the city, it says Jesus, Jesus wept. I want to begin to go down for our, for our descent here on Palm Sunday. I told Jerry and Matt this week, I was struck by uh, this statement, unlike any other time that I've prepared to speak during this Passion Week. In my 30 years as a pastor, I was struck by that phrase, for some reason in a new way. Do you ever do that when you're reading scripture and you've read over a, pas a passage over and over and over and over again? And if you're a pastor, you've preached on it time and time and time again. And then all of a sudden you read it for the 104th time and you go, wow, I never really understood the impact of that statement. When Luke says, Jesus looks out over the city and he weeps. Huge crowds of people. His reception into the city of Jerusalem has been nothing short of incredible. Imagine what his disciples thought. I can see Peter standing off to the side going, yes, finally. Finally, people are recognizing what we saw back there when we left our fishing boats and our nets and we started following. They understand, this dude's for real. He's legit. I mean, he has come to do something incredible. Now, finally, people get it. And guess what? As a result of them getting who he is, they're going to get that we've been here right from the beginning. And we're going to get what's coming to us too. But in all this, Jesus looks down into Jerusalem into that great city, and the text says that Jesus wept. And by the way, that English word wept there doesn't really do justice to what's really being implied here in the Greek text. The Greek word means that he openly, convulsively was heaving in sorrow. The only way that I can describe it is if you've been with somebody who has just tragically lost a loved one. And it was just sudden, and they got a phone call. Somebody told them, and they fall to their knees, and they begin to cry out in agony. That's what Jesus is doing here. And the question is asked, as Jesus looks out over this city, we know he's the Son of God. We know that he knows what he's getting ready to do. We know he's accepted that as the Son of God, that that's why he had been sent from heaven. But we can't help but wonder as he looks out over this multitude of people and over this city, why is he crying so uncontrollably? I think the answer is actually very simple. He knows who he is and what he's come to do for these people. His disciples, on the other hand, they still don't even accept the fact that he's going to die. When he tells them, and Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. Did you see what just happened? Did you see the way they welcomed you? You're not going to die. They love you. The religious leaders, 
They simply see him as a threat to their comfortably, comfortable lives. And the, the fans that are following him, they see him nothing more than as a savior from their present situation. And here is the reality of our situation today. There is no doubt that if Jesus were to come into this community today, by that I mean into Cary, North Carolina, into the Triangle. If he were to stand at the back of Northwest Community Church this morning and he were to look out over these crowds, I have no doubt that while he would see many of us lifting up our voices in song to him, his name would be all over the screen and we would be singing it. And many of us would have a Bible opened up or at the very least we'd have our, our phones out and we'd have an app up and we're reading about him in the Holy Scriptures. He would hear us as we mingled with one another, hug each other and call each other brother and sister and all of those things. And yet can I suggest to you this morning that if he were to come in to many churches like ours and carry today, he would weep. And why is that? Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, I Never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The reason I believe that Jesus would weep over many of us in this room this morning and in our community, those of us that name the name of Jesus Christ, is this. That while we are fans, we are not fully devoted followers of his. Because many of us have a false view of who Jesus is and what it means to have a relationship with him, I believe he would weep over that this morning. You see, here's what we need to understand getting into this Holy Week and as we work our way down now toward Resurrection Sunday, and that is this, that Jesus did not come onto this earth just to make us a little better than we were before. Many of us have bought into that idea that a relationship with Jesus, you just kind of add him to the, uh, to the religious shelf in your life. And you put Jesus over there as if he were nothing more than an accessory in your home. For many of us, he is, he, is, he is nothing more than someone that provides us comfort when we go through and navigate our way through the difficulties of the human experience. For many of us, if we were honest today, we spent a good portion of our week never even thinking about who Jesus is and the impact and the influence that he should have on our lives because for most of us today, this week, life went pretty well in Cary, North Carolina, did it not? You went to your job, you came home to your nice house, you sat down at your nice table and you were fed. Your kids went to great schools and they're progressing in their education and, and they were involved in lots of activities this week and you did some fun things. Maybe you went to a movie, you went shopping, you bought some new clothes. You enjoyed your dog, you enjoyed your neighbors, you enjoyed your family members and now you came to church on Sunday because that's what we do. And you don't want to just show up on Easter Sunday, right? So you come Palm Sunday too because that way you got two in a row and it doesn't make you look so bad. But other than that, Jesus is nothing more than an ornament on a religious shelf in your life. Can I suggest to you this morning that Jesus did not come to be an accessory in your life? John 10.10 10 says, in fact, one of my favorite verses in the Gospels, 
where Jesus says, I've come that you might have life. And I love one translation where Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. Life to the max. And there's so many of us that think, I already enjoy life to the max. I already enjoy life to the full. Oh yeah? If you think that your life is so great today, imagine what it would be like if you were a fully devoted follower of Jesus. If he were at the center of your life, and as he is, the giver, the sustainer, the perfecter of life. If he said, I've come that you might have life and life to the max, imagine if you think your life is so great today what it would be like if you experienced that kind of life. What a difference a week is going to make. Just days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Friday, some of that same mob that were shouting out, Save us! Save us! Hoshiana! Hoshiana! are going to shout what? They're going to shout, Crucify him! Crucify him! He wasn't the one that we thought he would be. He wasn't a savior just from our temporary circumstances and our pathetic lives under the tyranny of Rome. Go ahead, crucify him. He doesn't do for me what I need him to do for me. He's nothing. He's nobody. Away with him. It would be some of those same people that would shout that out. And can I suggest to you as we close that Palm Sunday reminds us that Jesus confronted Jerusalem with a decision, and I would say, on Palm Sunday 2017, we're confronted with that same decision. And that is what we're going to do with Jesus and who do we see him as. Palm Sunday is the great divider then and it separates us into two camps. And I want you to think about this as you go into Holy Week. One group believes that he's a nice guy who has said some very interesting and helpful things. Right? And as a result, we kind of find this just a really cool little atmosphere right here. Right? So we think, man, this is a great community. Right? We love that word, community. I got brothers and sisters. I got friends. We, we hug. We love. You know, they're my, they're my friends. That's who I do life with. There's one group that sees Jesus, and all of this is nothing more than that. That he's interesting. He's a nice guy. He said some helpful things, and those are fans. And then the second camp that Palm Sunday can put us in is the other group that believes he is the Savior. As a result of being the Savior, he has come to be the Lord of our lives. And as the Lord of our lives, he doesn't want just a place, he wants the place. He wants to be right at the center of our very existence. He doesn't want you to come in with your, your Easter clothes and your, and your bunny and your chocolate and all that on Easter Sunday morning. He wants to be the very center of your life, the very affection of your life. He wants you to love nothing more than him. And he wants you to get on message with the reason why we've been left here on the planet. And that is the good news of the gospel, which changes, which transforms lives, which gives people the life that is abundant and full and life to the max. And those are known as fully devoted followers of Jesus. And so I ask you, as we enter into this uh, Palm Sunday, we come out of it and we go into Holy Week and we wait for Resurrection Sunday, which camp are you in? Are you a fan that's what you've come here this morning for. Wave your hand a little bit, sing a few songs, walk out and go on with life. Till we come on Easter Sunday and we celebrate again the resurrection. Or 
Are you a fully devoted follower of Jesus with him at the center of your very life and your existence? Palm Sunday is a great divider. Which camp are you in?